Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. If you'd asked me what my dream was when I was a teenager, I would have told you about the life I'm living right now. The touring, the parties, the girls. I sometimes try to have a conversation with my daughter, but it just feels like everyone is in their own world. It's not that I think I'm better than the other players, but I know I work harder. I still cannot believe the coach cut me for a bad attitude. 11 years I've been working here now. Lately I've been working so hard, just trying to get my next promotion. He was out of a movie, this guy. The romantic dates, the flowers. He was funny, kind. My family all loved him. It seemed too perfect. I broke up with him after a year. He was devastated. Sometimes I wonder if I made a mistake, but if it's too good to be true, it must be, right? I've been dating again, but nothing serious. I learned since my first husband cheated and left me that I'm the only one I can trust. We're launching into a new series today called Didn't See It Coming. And we all have these challenges that we will experience in life that are internal, not external situations. We'll have external situations that happen to us, things like a job loss or an unexpected health crisis. But we're starting a series on the internal challenges that happen to us. And the stories in the video are some of those things that we may identify with that change the way we see the world, that change the way we perceive what's going on around us. And so today we're beginning this series called Didn't See It Coming, and it's based on a book by a pastor and author named Kerry Newhoff. And we're going to be diving through five of the topics that he explores in his book and kind of understanding how do these affect us? How do these shape us? And one of the things that's, that's key for us to sometimes remember in this is these are not Christian issues. These aren't issues that happen and challenges just for followers of Christ. These are human issues. These are things that every person experiences and encounters at some point in our lives. And the question that we're asking often this is this one, are there warning signs? Are there warning signs of these challenges before they affect us? And as we go, we're also going to be talking about if you maybe identify that you're in one of these challenges, what's the path out of it? What's the path towards change. And so today we're starting with the topic of cynicism. And one of the things that's true is no one intends to become a cynic. No one intends to become jaded and distrusting of other people and distrusting of others' motives and expecting that the worst is always going to happen. No one comes into life expecting to be a cynic. No one writes in their yearbook, hey, 30 years from now, I don't want to be a burnt out cynic. No one writes that. And if, if you did, maybe you need to see a counselor. Because counseling is great, and it's good, and it's helpful. But what we're talking about today in this is what happens when we encounter it, when we see it in our lives, and if we see cynicism growing, how do we start on a path out of cynicism? And my first encounter with cynicism happened at a pretty early, youngish age. When I was in high school, I went to Crocus Plains here in Brandon, and they had this design drafting program. And what was so cool about design drafting was it was all project and problem-based. And so our, our teacher would teach us the fundamentals of design. How do you identify a problem? How do you come up with 
as many solutions as you can? How do you research them? What have other people tried? How do you pick the one that seems the most fruitful and then dive into it and then constantly refine and constantly improve? Because the truth is there is this perfect solution out there somewhere for any challenge. That's what our te- my teacher kept drilling into us. And I loved it. I ate it up. I was convinced that this is the path my life is going to take. And it was reaffirmed when we did a field trip to the University of Manitoba. We went and we were in their studio for the Bachelor of Environmental Design. And halfway through the field trip, my teacher pulled me aside and he said, Brian, you got to look around. You got to take in a good look because you're going to be here after high school. This is what you're going to do. You're going to be here. You're going to go on to be a master's of architect. You're going to be an architect. You can do this. And he was trying to empower me with that dream. And I I was like, yeah, this is what it's going to be. I'm going to change the face of cities with the buildings I design at like 16 years old. That's my dream that's implanted in my heart. And so when I came to the last three months of my grade 12 year, they did this work placement where they would send us into a company to kind of work, but just to gain experience. And so last three months of grade 12, I show up at this local housing developer's place where I'm going to be a draftsman. I'm going to work on house plans with him. And I walked in there like, I'm going to own this place. Like, I am going to cause traffic jams with the sheer beauty of the perfect mix of form and function of these houses that people will have to stop and look over and say, wow, that is a magnificent four-bedroom, three-bath, two-car garage that is just everything that everyone ever wants. And these houses are going to sell instantly. That was my in my mind as I walked in there the first day. Now, I showed up early, as you should on a first day, and so I showed up at lunchtime because I was going to work every afternoon because I still had classes in the morning. And I walk in, and it is empty. There is no one there. Everyone's out on lunch. And I kind of stand at the front, and I look around, and I'm like, what do I do? And finally, one of the accountants from like way in the back pokes their head around and says, oh, just sit at that desk. Someone will talk to you later. Okay, so I sat down, and no sooner had I sat down, but one of the construction foremen walked in the front door, and he doesn't say hi or anything. He just looks at me and says, what's the foundation spec on the Cater Project? I started to say, I don't know. I'm the summer like work experience student. All I got out of my mouth was, I don't know. And then he went off on me, and he tore a strip up and down. How can you not know this spec? How do you not know what's going on? And then it got to the point where he says, if you ever mess up on one of my plans again, I'm going to make you concrete shoes and throw you in the Assiniboine. And, then he, and I'm just like, I'm, I'm 18 years old. I'm like, what? what? I don't even know how to respond to that. Now, fortunately, he caused enough of a commotion that someone came out of the lunchroom and like calmed this guy down, got him the stuff, and left. And it turned out she was who was going to be mentoring and training me through this. And she looks at me and she says, are you ready to deal with that every single day? And I kind of went, every day? (laughs) Sure enough. By the end of the first week, I went back to my drafting teacher and I said, I want to quit. I'm not doing this work placement. This is hostile. This is awful. I can't do it. And he's like, no, no, you just got to pay your dues. You just got to pay your dues. You got to work through the junky parts of the job. You know, soon enough, you know, next fall, you're going to be at U of M. You're going to go do this. You know, just, just get through this. This is a great resume builder. And I'm like, okay. By the end of the second week, I'd given up on architecture completely. I knew there was not a chance in my life I was going into anything construction related. I was so turned off from it. I'm like, I can't do this. So my three months comes to an end 
and I hadn't done really anything. I hadn't done it. Like I'd done one house plan that was for a house that wasn't even going to get built because they just, they didn't want me touching anything that was actually going to get built. You know how it is as a work placement student. That's just what happens. So at the end of it, my last day, one of the owners of the company comes and says, so what are you doing after high school? I'm like, I don't know. Like, I honestly don't know. I got nothing now because my whole dream is gone. And he says to me, well, you can start 8 a.m. Monday. So I started 8 a.m. Monday. And I spent a year there designing houses and in this place that ran on, I, I am certain there is a bottle labeled cynicism pumped into the air vents. Now, maybe this place has changed. This was a long time ago. But this place ran on pure 100% grade cynicism. Everyone was cynical. Everyone was just snapping and biting at each other. Everyone was pessimistic. Everyone said nothing's going to ever change. There was one shred of hope in this whole office, and that was the office lottery pool. Every, maybe you know, you know where I'm going. Maybe you are in an office where there's an office lottery pool. And every week, they would come, the one guy would come around. He's like, hey, who wants to chip in for the lottery pool? Who wants to chip in for the lottery pool? And and, and they would sit around at the break room and talk about how satisfying it would be when they win the lottery pool that they're going to line up one by one and walk into the boss's office and say, I quit and walk out. And then the next person's going, I quit. And they're going to walk out. That was the only piece of hope in that whole chunk of the building. See, here's what I learned at a young age. When hope and idealism are extinguished, cynicism is what grows to fill the gap. My hope and my idealism of what was going to happen, what I was going to be, what I was going to do here on my work placement, where my life was going to go, died a shriveling, awful death. And what replaced it already at 18, 19 years old was cynicism. This is what the world is. You know, all those dreams of high school shattered, gone. And I could feel in my heart already that this cynicism was growing. In fact, the person that sat next to me, she had done exactly what I did. She did her work placement there. This was five years later, and she was sitting at that desk, drawing plans. Nothing changed. And I just looked at that and said, I can't be that. Now, eventually, through a longer story and turn of events, I got headhunted by a different company, even though I said I'd never do drafting again. Went and worked for a different company. That ended badly, which is another story for another day. And I ended up selling cell phones with no idea what to do with my life still. And so I finally picked, I'm going to go to school and get a social work degree because that's about as far from construction as I can see. So I'm just going to go far the other way as I can. And so as I was in the process of applying for BU, I got approached by the church here and said, hey, would you like to be a part-time youth director for two years? And I'm like, well, I got to be here in Brandon for two years before I go to Winnipeg to finish my degree anyways. Sure, I'll do it. And what I didn't know at the time is that God was using all these events to draw me into ministry, into the role I'm in now. But when I started as a youth leader, I had this, part of my role was to build into the other youth leaders, to mentor, to train them. And even though I was barely half a step ahead of them in knowing anything about youth ministry, I had this one guy that I was building into on a daily, almost daily basis. We probably text or talked on the phone almost daily. And we were, I had so much hope and potential in him and what he would grow to become. I'm like, I actually probably shouldn't be the youth pastor. I think this guy should in a couple years. I got two years to train him up and then I'm going to still go to, to do my social work degree and, and he's the guy who should step up. And 
one day as we were going fishing together, he turns to me as we're, we get to our fishing spot and we're about to start fishing for the evening. He turns and says, so um, I'm out. And I'm like, what, what do you mean you're out? He's like, well, I, I'm out. You know, we, we bought this place out of town and we said we'd be here, but it's just too much driving. We're out. There was no conflict. There was no anger, except for me when I was driving home from the fishing spot. But here's the other thing about cynicism. Cynicism grows not because you don't care. It begins because you do care. I cared so deeply about this guy that I was investing and building into. And when he said, it's over. And, you know, we, I, I, you know, we, we said, oh, we'll text. We'll still get together. We'll do this. Never happened. Cynicism grows because you do care. When you do care and that gets extinguished, when you do care and it leads to hurt or it leads to pain, that's when cynicism starts to grow in us. And then the next meeting I had with a different youth leader, you know what's in the back of my mind the whole time I meet with them? When are you going to quit? When are you going to quit? And I wanted to just lay it on the table and be like, tell me when you're going to quit. I I didn't, thankfully. I, I held my tongue on that one because the truth is that youth leader actually took over the youth ministry when I moved from associate pastor to interim lead here. She outlasted me. But that's the problem. When we project the wounds of the past onto our future, that's really the definition of cynicism. When we take what hurt us, what harmed us in the past, and we say, that is what will always happen in the future, that's what harms us. That's what leads us down this path of cynicism, of distrusting people, of, of second-guessing other people's motives constantly, of always expecting the worst. See, cynicism grows in all these situations, when hope and idealism gets extinguished, when the pains of the past get projected onto the future. And it also happens when you know too much. Cynicism happens and grows in us when we know too much about what's going on. In fact, if we go all the way back to a guy in the Old Testament named Solomon, who was the third king of Israel during the time when when Israel had a united monarchy, this was the pinnacle of of all of Israel's history, they had the most economic prosperity, the most safety as a country with the alliances that he was able to rot with the other nations around them. Israel was thriving. Israel was booming. It was protected. It was wealthy. And you know that Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived because when he became king, he said, I don't know how to do this. I'm about 20 years old. And God told him, you can ask me for anything you want. And Solomon says, I want wisdom. I want to know how to lead your people well. And so God grants him wisdom. He's the wisest man who ever lived, richest man who ever lived, even adjusted for today. But at the end of his life, Solomon wrote a book that's in our scriptures called Ecclesiastes. And this is what he writes about wisdom at the end of his life. He says this, he says, Ecclesiastes 1.18, The greater my wisdom, the greater my grief. To increase knowledge only increases sorrow. And we experience this today too. We experience this because as you grow up, you start to understand the problems of our world. We start to understand and see more the sorrow and the tragedy and the misery that happens around us on a regular basis. And our 24-7 news cycle only you know, builds that up bigger because there's actually research being done into saying that the human mind is not meant to be able to comprehend that level of grief on a daily basis when we read the news of what's happening in the world. It used to be you'd only hear the news of your community and the area around it and we could handle that. But the more we know, 
the more it tends to lead us to grief. The more we know about the way things failed in the past, maybe it's a past relationship, a past job, anything like that, and we project it onto the future, that knowledge only increases our sorrow. And in fact, this is where Solomon gets to just a few verses later as he's talking about this. He says, So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. So we could end there and everyone walks out of here really depressed. But that's not where things end. That's where Solomon was at the end of his life. And we know that he didn't set things up well for success. And after him, the nation splits in half. And it leads to this giant era of just trouble for Israel and Judah. But let's stop here and talk about cynicism. How Solomon had his cynicism grow because he knew too much. Because he saw and he understood everything around him. He had all these wounds, the same wounds that we often have that push us towards cynicism. But there's a myth about cynicism that we have to break right at the start if we're going to have any hope of moving through this. And that's this one. Cynics aren't born, they're made. Life didn't make you a cynic, you made you a cynic. We make ourselves become cynics with our response to the challenges we face. We don't consciously choose, I'm going to become a cynic. We don't write that in our high school yearbook, like I said. But it's the small, often subconscious decisions we make. When a friend says, yeah, this is over, we make this little subconscious choice of saying, well, it's better not to trust. When a relationship breaks down because they betrayed you, we make this choice of saying, I'm not going to trust again. And whether we verbalize that choice or not, we make that in our minds and in our hearts. And that is the root where cynicism grows. We say, I'm not going to hope again. I'm not going to trust again. I'm not going to be kind again. I'm not going to be vulnerable again. I'm not going to be authentic again. Each of those little pieces are the events that lead us to cynicism. Each of those little choices. So here's the question. How do you kick cynicism in the teeth? How do you get rid of it? How do you overcome it? That's where we actually want to get to in this. I'm going to take us there in a moment, but before that, there's something that I like to do, and maybe you're going to think I'm weird for this, but I really kind of enjoy reading children's Bible storybooks. And it's not just because I have young kids, and so we have some of those around, but even when I go to a bookstore, if I have time to kill, I often wander my way there, and I pull random children's Bible storybooks off the shelf. And there's this question I always have, I'm like, so which stories did they choose to include? Because there's the standards, there's the Garden of Eden, there's Noah's Ark, there's David and Goliath, there's Daniel and the lion's den. And I can understand why those ones are in there. But there's one story from the Old Testament that is without fail almost always included. And I do not have a clue why someone writing a book for children includes this story. And that's the story of Samson. And Samson was the last of this era of judges, right before the, the united monarch we just talked about. So Solomon was about 10th century BC, Samson is about 13th century BC, and he's the last of the judges. And this is a time period where Israel had no king, and when the people were under threat, God would raise up a leader to lead the people, to protect them, to guide them, to shepherd them for a time period so that the people would be safe. So here's the story of Samson in a nutshell, and this is going to teach us something about cynicism. So Samson, his parents were childless. And one day, as Manoah's wife, we don't even get to know his mother's name, Manoah's wife 
is praying and an angel appears to her and says this, you will become pregnant and give birth to a son and his hair must never be cut for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth and he will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. And the Philistines were this neighboring nation that was threatening Israel constantly. You see them pop up time and time again in scripture that they were out to get Israel. They wanted Israel's land. So, This happens. Manoah's wife becomes pregnant, has a boy. They choose to never cut his hair. That is the symbol of his dedication to God. And Samson grows up. And nothing really remarkable happens until he comes of age and he wants a wife. And so the first thing he does is he tells his parents, well, I want a Philistine wife. I don't want a wife from my own nation. I want a wife from our enemy nation. And they go and they find him a wife from the Philistines. And so there's this seven-day wedding celebration happening. And on the way, Samson kills a lion with his bare hands. And then later when he comes back, there's honey. There's a beehive in the carcass and he eats the honey and he makes this riddle out of it. That's the part that we keep in the children's storybook. That's about all we keep. So Samson's at this wedding feast and he tells a riddle to his in-laws And he makes them a bet. He wagers them 30 sets of clothes on this bet that they can't figure out this riddle. And they can't figure it out. So his new wife, for the first week of their marriage, as they're having this big week-long wedding celebration, is nagging him constantly. What's the answer? What's the answer? You're making a fool of my people. You're making a fool of my parents. So he gives in. And he tells her, here's the answer. What does she do? Immediately goes to her father. Here's the answer. Tells Samson that Samson loses the bet. He needs 30 sets of clothes. So what does he do? He goes to the neighboring town, murders 30 men, takes their clothes, brings it back, says, here you go. That part's not in the children's storybook. Oh, and that's just the start, because after this, then he commits arson, then he commits a whole bunch more murders, then he spends time visiting prostitutes, then he steals a whole set of city gates, because again, he's the strongest man ever. He has this advantage. So then later on, we don't know what happened to that first wife, but he looks for another wife, and he finds one named Delilah, and she's also a Philistine. And she wants to know the secret of his strength. And so he keeps lying to her and telling different things. This is why. If you bind me with seven new bowstrings, I'll be as weak as Pallas the babe. So she gets him to fall asleep, binds him, and says, oh, the Philistines are coming. And of course, he breaks loose, beats them all back, and he's Samson. You know, he just survives anything. So finally, he gives in. After we don't know how many months of her trying, of nagging constantly, he says, if you cut my hair, I'll be as weak as any man. So she lulls him to sleep. Use your imagination for what the Bible is like. It says lulls him to sleep. That's not what they mean. So Samson is lulled to sleep. In the middle of the night, she has a servant come, cuts off his hair, and says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And sure enough, he's weak. He has no strength. They capture him, gouge his eyes out, and throw him in jail. He's now blind and in jail in a Philistine prison. And they would bring him out to kind of laugh and say, look at this hero of the Israelites. Look how easily we defeated him once we knew his secret. So at the end of his life, Samson gets drawn out at this big festival in Philistine. There's this giant temple. 3,000 people are in it. All the Philistine rulers are there. And they bring Samson out. And, they, and he asks to be put in the center of it by the two support pillars of this temple. And this is the only time Samson prays. This is what he prays. 
Sovereign Lord, remember me again. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time. With one blow, let me pay back to the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. This is a prayer of revenge. But his hair's grown back, and God gives him his strength back. And Samson pushes the pillars apart. The temple collapses. He kills 3,000 Philistines in one instant. Why is this in children's storybooks? Here's why. If we go back to that promise the angel made, the angel said he will begin to rescue Israel. And sure enough, despite all of his advantages that Samson only used for personal gain, he used it to win bets, he used it to commit arson, he used it to commit murder, he used it for whatever his own gain he wanted to. See, what the stories of Judges demonstrates and what Samson demonstrates is everything wrong with humanity. When we read Judges, we're actually supposed to see all the flaws of what's wrong with us. This is what happens when we let humanity and our selfishness and our own greed and our own desires take over and be the center of who we are. And God still works despite that. God still works around all of Samson's flaws and still rescues Israel from Philistine at the end of Samson's life. Not because of anything Samson did, but because of who God is. And see, this is the way God responds. If we move forward into the story and we know what happens, and we're going to celebrate it at Christmas coming up, that Jesus comes into the world, that God steps into humanity to basically reveal himself because all the ways he's been trying to reveal himself, all the ways through the Mosaic Law, all the ways through the Old Testament, we're failing to reveal God's love because we people were getting in the way. So God says, all right, it's on me. And Jesus steps into the story. Jesus steps into the story to respond with love and with hope. See, God sees every part of humanity that drives us into cynicism and his response is love and hope. This is what God's always doing. This is the message of the gospel. This is why we believe what we believe. And this is the way that Kerry writes it in the book. He says that this, the thrust of the gospel is that Jesus sees your hate and meets it with love. He sees your despair and he counters it with hope. He sees your doubt and he lobs belief back at you again and again and again. Cynicism melts under the relentless hope of the gospel. This is what the gospel leads us to, is hope. God sees everything wrong with us, all our Samson-like qualities, and says, I'm going to respond with hope. I'm not going to respond by wiping you out. I'm going to respond by personifying myself, by putting on flesh, by becoming the incarnate son of God to live and dwell amongst you, to reveal a new way. And I'm going to do everything it takes for you to be in a relationship with me. Right to the point of Jesus giving up his own life on a cross for us so that we could have hope, so that we could have love. So every time cynicism rears its head, we have to choose hope. If we want to kick cynicism in the teeth, We have to choose hope. Samson chose revenge. Revenge just pushes us deeper. But hope is where we find the antidote to cynicism. So how do you find hope? How do we find hope on a regular daily basis? How do we push towards this? And there's a secret trick that people who aren't cynical have discovered, but they maybe haven't even discovered that they've discovered this. 
there's a secret trip to finding, finding hope, and it's this. Curious people are never cynical, and cynical people are never curious. Because when we become cynical, we expect that we know the outcome to every situation. We know how that person's going to respond, and they're going to respond by hurting us. We know how this situation's going to go. It's going to end badly. You know, you can't expect a cynical person to ever change the world because all they'll do is tell you what's wrong with the world. But someone who finds hope, someone who lets curiosity dig us towards hope, someone who finds hope is able to defeat cynicism. That's what Jesus came to do. So how do you cultivate curiosity in your life? How do you push towards curiosity? How do you push towards hope? And there's four simple things that any one of us can do. The first one's this, schedule thinking time. Too often in our lives, we are just go, 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 task, 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 and we never take time to stop and think. Curiosity never exists in the middle of hurry. So we have to find ways to schedule time to slow down, to spend time journaling, to spend time going for a walk, spending time in nature, spending time in scripture, spending time in God's presence, spending time in ways that allow us to think, in ways that give us space to look for hope. The second thing is this, ask open-ended questions. Next week, we're going to talk about the death of conversation in our society and in our civilization, and and how that's affecting us when we talk about disconnection. But when we talk about curiosity, what I mean is ask questions that can't just be answered with yes or no. Because when we ask questions that are only yes or no answers, we're just trying to get information, or we're just trying to get an answer, or sometimes maybe we're trying to actually push someone to make a certain decision that benefits us. But when we ask open-ended questions, questions that force other people to think, that force other people to explore, And when we listen, we start hearing things no one else hears. You start to learn what makes other people tick, what makes other people find hope. And we can learn from that ourselves. Curiosity will lead us to hope. The third one goes hand in hand with the second, give fewer answers. Sometimes we have to make the choice not to have the last word in the conversation, not to be an authority on everything, especially things that we aren't an authority on. But to actually... Take a step back and say, what can we learn from others? What can we learn in every situation we're in? What can I learn from this person in every conversation I have? Because what you'll find in that is you'll start getting a little bit of radar that picks up on where hope is. Would we choose to listen to others? And the last one is this, ask why and ask why not. Why is a question that we grow out of. You know, some of us have kids that are in the why stage where everything they do, they just say, why? And you give them an answer, and they say, why? And then you give another answer, and they say, why? And then you give them another answer. And we get exhausted by that. (laughs) But every time they ask why, they're trying to understand. There's curiosity underneath why every single time. And there's a point in our lives where we stop asking why. Where we stop looking at something and say, well, why does that work? Why does that happen? Because we think we have the answer. That's cynicism. That's projecting onto something we don't know about what we think we do know. So we got to make ourselves stop and ask why. And so even when we come to scripture, ask why. Why is the story of Samson there? Well, even though it reveals everything awful about humanity, 
there's this little piece of showing how God tries to restore and redeem everything. It doesn't give permission to act the way Samson did. But it does show that God is working in everything. Second one is why not? And why not is a question of risk. And many of us, as we get older, we become more and more risk averse. Now, in some things, that is wise. There is a point where I chose to hung up, hang up my snowboard because A, I'm not very good at it, and B, it takes me a lot longer to heal than I did when I was 19. <laughs> Sometimes risk avoidance is good. But when we become risk avoidant in our whole life, we close ourselves off to things that God might be trying to do. Why not try that in a different way? Why not try a discipline we've never tried before? Why not explore a solution we've never thought to explore before? Because we might actually just find a piece of hope in it. We may actually just find a different way of doing things. We may actually just find the thing that will lead us closer to God, the thing that will lead us deeper in relationship with one another. We might just find the thing that addresses the problems of the world that we've given up on and we've said that's always will be the problem. People asking why not and people asking why are the ones who change the world. They're the ones that influence change, that see people flourish in hope, in curiosity. Because here's the bottom line on all this. When hope flourishes, cynicism doesn't stand a chance. So some of us here, we may feel like a cynic. We may identify more with the first half of this message than the second half. And that's okay. But now we can choose to make a choice. We can choose to make a choice to say, I'm going to pursue curiosity. I'm going to pursue hope. I'm going to pursue opportunities for good. I'm going to look for what's beneficial rather than assume everything's terrible. That's the choice that we can make to defeat cynicism. That's the choice we can make to kick it in the teeth. To say we can have hope. We can experience love. We can experience grace. We can experience peace. And all of that is personified in who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So those of us who say we are followers of Jesus, those of us who profess to this as our faith, and I'm not assuming that's everyone here. We'll, we'll have people here that you're checking things out. Maybe you got invited by a friend. Maybe someone was like, hey, you need this. And they didn't tell you what this was. And you showed up and you're like, oh, we're talking about this. But here's what I want to tell you. Even if that's where you are, there is always hope found in Jesus. He sees everything we've done, everything we are, and responds with hope and love. And Jesus is in the restoration business. He's in the redemption business. He is in the work of taking our cynicism, balling it up, tossing it aside, and saying, that's forgiven, we can let go of that, and replacing it with love and hope. And when we choose to stay curious, we'll find that. Let me end with a word of prayer. God, thank you for who you are and how you saw fit to come into this world to be able to tell us about who you are. God, we thank you for all the ways that you shape us, the ways that you lead us, the ways you guide us. And God, I know that you want to do a work on the cynicism and the hardening of our hearts that happens. We know that your word says that you want to replace our hard hearts with tender, soft, and responsive hearts. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd begin that work in us. I pray that we would be receptive to you doing that. You would be, that we would be receptive to looking for hope and seeing it. Seeing the potential for good more than our 
forecast of bad. And so, Lord, I pray that this week you would open our eyes to see opportunities where cynicism is trying to rear its head. That you would open our eyes to recognize, maybe it's in the words we say, even if it's after the words came out of our mouth, through eyes, wait a second, that was cynicism. I want to pull that back. Lord, would you help us to see opportunities where we can speak hope and love and truth and grace and not let cynicism have its foothold in us. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen. So next week, folks, we're continuing the series. And we're going to be talking about disconnection. Why do many of us feel like our relationships fall apart? Why do many of us feel lonely? Why do many of us feel alone? We're going to be tackling that together next week. So folks, I hope to see you next Sunday. Have a great week. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca. Thank you.